0: Hello, and welcome to the Path 11 podcast with your hosts, April and Mike. Today we're speaking with Dr. Bernie Siegel, who is a well known proponent of integrative and holistic approaches to healing that heal not just the body, but also the mind and soul. A retired surgeon and a lover of animals, Bernie has been at the forefront of spiritual and medical ethic issues of our day and has been named one of the top 20 spiritually influential living people by Watkins Mind, Body, Spirit magazine. Bernie and his wife, Bobby, live in a suburb of New Haven, Connecticut. They have five children, eight grandchildren, four cats, two dogs, and much love. We'd like to welcome him to our show. We would like to welcome Dr. Bernie Siegel to our show today, a fellow New Yorker. I I see that you were born and raised in Brooklyn, New York.
1: Yes, big part of my life.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and we're, we're both kind of upstate New York, so... We're, we're pretty proud New Yorkers here, so it's nice to have a fellow New Yorker on our podcast. And um, Bernie has s- such a wealth of information. He has over 12 books, a bunch of audiobooks, CDs, and DVDs, and we are going to try our best in about an hour to tap into his wealth of information um, on healing, on the topic of love, um, hearing about some of his... Um, Just ideas about mainstream medicine and talking about a couple of excerpts of some of his books and also just how the mind can heal the body itself. So welcome, Bernie. And um, we'd also, you know, would like to get a chance to talk about your newest book that you have out as well. And um, but I'd like to start in the beginning just to kind of hear a little bit about your medical background. I know that you were a pediatric surgeon and, um, you know, some of the work that you've done with uh, the book Love Medicine.
1: Yeah, I I trained at Yale, did Mm -hmm. what's called general surgery, but I felt at that time that there was, this is a number of years ago, there was nobody there who was especially trained in pediatric surgery. So I went out to Pittsburgh Children's Hospital and um, had a year of pediatric surgery and then came back and practiced both things and with other surgeons. But I say with other surgeons, but we cared about people. That was what our practice was about. And literally, it wasn't who paid you, who didn't pay you. what It was taking care of the people. And it was very comfortable working with other surgeons who were like that. I mean, we all became doctors for what I call healthy reasons, because we cared about people, um, not because we were fascinated by the human body, as a lot of students say that's why they want to be a doctor. But you realize people come in the body but that's what also led me to have difficulties. As a matter of fact, one of my patients was a veterinarian. And when I was going through a period in the 70s of just emotional trauma from not being trained to take care of people. You know, the the sentence that struck me was I don't know where I read it. Doctors are trained to treat the result not the cause. So, Mm -hmm. you had all these years of how to treat a disease, but not how to take care of the people with them, or how you're going to feel uh, because of all the things you can't fix and cure. And uh, the deans of all the schools I went to, when I would write to them, they never wrote back to me telling them, you know, what they didn't do for me. But anyway, one of my patients was a veterinarian, and I said to him one day, you have to do me a favor. He said, what? I said, I want you to help me get admitted to veterinary college so I can become a veterinarian and I'll give up medicine and I won't have all this emotional stuff I'm going through. And he said, Bernie, don't. I said, why not? He said, come with me. And we went up to the waiting room and he said, look, there are people in the waiting room and people bring the pets in. <laughs> <laughs> mhm. And. You know, he said, you have to take care of the people. And, you know, again, it's not their pet or their disease, it's the people. And so I started going to workshops, and when you were at a workshop, and when I say I went to workshops, I was trying to learn more as a doctor how to take care of people. But when I'd get to the workshop, there would be no other doctors there, just the patients. But that was the best gift of all, because... My patients would come and sit around me. They weren't afraid of me as a doctor. And one of them was a young woman with breast cancer. And I always keep saying, I wish I could find her because her words led me to redirect my life. She said, you're a nice guy. I feel better when I'm in the office with you, but I can't take you home with me. So I need to know how to live between office visits." Mm. That's a title of one of my books, too. Uh, when I learned how to help people. But I thought, wow, I don't have to feel like a failure. If I can't cure a disease, but I could help somebody live with it, then I've done something for them. So I sent 100 letters to people with cancer from our office saying, if you want to live a longer, better life, come to a meeting. And I expect hundreds of people to show up. I really was a nervous wreck. You know, what are you going to do with all these people? You didn't tell them they couldn't bring friends and relatives. (laughs) Twelve women showed up. And I couldn't believe it. You know, where was everybody? But ultimately, I began to learn that people were afraid of failing. Or I may ask them to draw pictures. Or I want them to read a book. Um, They don't have time for that. And they're not artists. And what if they do it wrong? What if they don't get well? You know, it's the whole failure aspect. And again, I can say the animals are great teachers um, because they don't worry about doing it wrong, if you know what I mean, or mm-hmm. looking in the mirror, you know, about, oh, look what this has done to me. Um, they're here to have a nice day. And the children are like that, too. They became my teachers. One of one of our kids had a, a pain in his leg, and I told him to take a hot bath. See, this is where the intuitive comes in. Here's a seven-year-old child who says, my knee hurts. I said, go get in the hot tub. It'll help. He said, no, I need an x-ray. Now, what the hell does a seven-year-old know about getting an x-ray? His leg hurt. I figured, you know, he must have fallen or kidding around with his brothers. Something happened. But we took an x-ray because I know that inner wisdom. And he had a tumor. Wow. Wow. My assumption was he would certainly lose his leg because it looked like a cancer, and he could die within a year or so. And I also felt guilty because I told him to take a hot bath, you know, not go get an x-ray. But the next day, I never forget this moment. I'm sitting at my desk at home, and he walks in. Dad, what is it, Keith? Can I talk to you for a moment? Sure. What is it? You're handling this poorly. I never forget those words. He went on to become my therapist <laughs> at age <laughs> seven. Basically, his message was, <clears throat> we're trying to have a nice day and play in the front yard. And you want us all in our rooms depressed over what's going to happen next year. Because he had a twin sister and three older brothers. And, um, you know, and I looked at him and I thought, you're right. And and this is a story I, I just told recently. There's a friend of mine who wrote a book called Animals as Teachers and Healers. Her name keeps popping out of my head, but she learned she had cancer many, many years ago. And her boyfriend, who was living with her, just couldn't deal with it emotionally. So he abandoned her. He just left the house. And she said, I'm sitting here all alone, totally depressed. I'll be dead in a year. Um and this stray cat walks across the porch. So she said, I put some food out for it." And eventually the cat came into the house. And then she thought, well, I better take it to a vet. If I'm going to go through treatments and, you know, chemo, I have a low weight count, I got to have a healthy cat. So she takes the cat to the vet and the vet examines it, says, your cat has feline leukemia and about a year to live. And she came home. Ugh. Here the two of us. We're both going to be dead in a year. So she said, I'm plopped down in the living room, totally depressed, and the cat is ripping up the house, having a wonderful day. <laughs> and I thought, maybe that cat knows something I don't know. And to make a long story short, the cat lived for, God knows, I don't know, 10 or 12 years, you know, never had a problem. And my friend also is alive and well and married today, and living a good life. But you know, what would happen to her? You see, because you were mentioning about mind and body. What would have happened to her if she stayed depressed? See? Then what happens to immune function? Down it goes. Stress hormone levels up. And then your body gets a message that may kill you. And I mean that literally. On Monday morning, we have more heart attacks, strokes and illnesses. Why? Because of how people feel about Monday morning. Mm. And, you know, if if we had a different feeling, if you love your life and your work, uh, then you wouldn't have that problem on Monday morning. So, you know, again, uh, and just to blend animals in, um, a study done by a doctor in Australia, he checked on people who had a heart attack. 12 months. And at the end of 12 months, he noticed that those who had a dog in the house had a 6% mortality rate. And those who had no dog in the house had a 24% mortality rate. And it's all about relationships. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's just so many studies that you want to live to be 100, have a clan that you belong to, the relationships eat healthy, and be active. And they said, you don't have to be obsessive or join a gym. You know, it's just be an active person. And those are simple things I learned. And you begin teaching people. See, then the lesson you learn is from the kids and animals that when you enjoy your life, you don't die when the doctor predicts. And what doctors call miracles or spontaneous remissions are not spontaneous or miraculous. Solzhenitsyn in his book Cancer Ward has a beautiful paragraph that really hit home with me because to cite the paragraph in the book, one of the men comes back into the ward carrying a book and he says to the other guys, hey, look, I found this book in the library. It says here there are cases of self-induced healing, not recovery through treatment. And it was as though self induced healing flooded out of the great open book like a rainbow colored butterfly, and they all held up their foreheads and cheeks for its healing touch as it flew past. Now, why does he pick a rainbow colored butterfly? That's intuitive. The rainbow. Literally, all the colors have meaning. One of my books is The Art of Healing with 60 drawings if people want to see what I'm talking about. But every art therapist knows what I'm talking about, but they don't know anatomy. So my perspective as a doctor, I see things in drawings they don't see because I know the body structure. But the rainbow is your life in order, rhythm, harmony. Every color is an emotion. You get everything in order. How do you get it in order? Through transformation. That's the symbol of the butterfly. So you transform, create this beautiful, meaningful life, and you don't die when you're supposed to. And and, and I mean, it doesn't have to be earth-shaking changes. Uh, to quote people who wrote letters to me, I bought a dog, put in a backyard wildlife habitat, laughed more, took vitamins. I didn't die, and now I'm so busy I'm killing myself. I'm going to Colorado to die in the mountains. It's beautiful there. I called up a year later to ask why I hadn't been invited to the funeral. (laughs) He answered the phone and said, it was so beautiful, I forgot to die. (laughs) (laughs) Another guy, and why I can't wear a tie, a multimillionaire down in Florida, whose son said, you got to talk to my father. They told him he has a couple of months to live. You've got to help him. So, you know, when people have that attitude, I can't say no, because that's a survival attitude. So we met and talked, and uh, one of the things he did, he said, I'm canceling the dress code at work. No tie, no jacket. You got two months. What the hell's the point of getting all dressed up? But the other thing, his wife said to him, well, we're going to buy a house on the ocean you've always wanted. You can watch the beautiful ocean, listen to Bernie's meditation tapes and they did and instead of dying in two months he lived over five and a half years and uh, made an impression on his hospital you see they realized this is not lucky or spontaneous this guy did something and his body got the live message and it kept going and to not see death as a failure i think um what's her name Uh, mother Teresa, said it in her way she said i will not attend an anti-war rally but if you ever have a peace rally, call me." So I'm not trying to get people to fight a battle against a disease or fight a war and empower the enemy. I'm trying to get them to heal their life and find inner peace. And as I said, the animals teach us uh, all these things, and um, they're just wonderful role models. And I, I have to add, uh, get a little crazy or mystical. I don't worry about what people think, but. In a past life, which I experienced when a friend over the phone said to me, because I was so busy, why are you living this life? She wanted me to stop doing all the things I was doing, as did a lot of other people. (laughs) Um, And I had a flash of myself with a sword in my hand killing. And our house years ago was a zoo, literally, an acre and a half you know, typical house and a little bit of land with fenced in areas with goats and ducks and geese running around and in the house was every living thing you can name, every species from snakes, the chameleons living in dead trees and bedrooms, Um, uh, skunks that would be skunked, squirrels, injured birds and other injured animals and exotic pets people didn't want. But I really felt It was my reaction to, in a sense, what I learned from that past life. I mean, to have faith, to not injure, not kill, but to love and care for all these creatures. And they were family. I mean, there's no house (laughs) like ours was when people would walk in and say, look, what's that thing running across the living room? I said, don't worry, it's family. (laughs) <laughs> you know, <laughs> and they'd look at me like I'm nuts. But as I said, they, they all attached and related. And let me, one that always touched my heart. Everything that hatched in the house, all the eggs, were put in incubators. So when they hatched, they saw our children first. So our kids were seen as their parents. You know, that's mm. who they connected to immediately, and um, they would treat them as their parents. They would always want to be with them and follow them and listen to them. The ducks and geese, it got to be a joke because when our five kids would go to get on the school bus, they would try to get on the bus with them. They would walk down the driveway to the road, and when the bus pulled up, (laughs) they would try (laughs) to jump up and in. I mean, the drivers, you know, enjoyed the experience, too. They didn't get upset. But And then in the afternoon, because they weren't allowed on the bus, they would go down to the street to meet the bus. And the reason it touched me was when we got so many eggs hatched, I mean, we couldn't keep all these creatures. My folks lived on a lake, fortunately. So we would take the ducks and geese down there and release them. And my mother called a few days after the first time we dropped off a whole bunch. Ernie, what is it? My neighbors have a question. What is it, Mom? They want to know why all the ducks and geese come out of the lake every time a school bus pulls up on the street. Now, that touched my heart. Those ducks and geese were looking for our kids. Mm. And, you know, and that's what we all need to do, become family. And uh, it's once I get started, one story connects with another. Let me just say one more, and then if you have some questions. the Because um, a friend of mine, her name is Audrey, and um, she asked me to speak up in the Hartford area, so I went up there. She runs the Happiness Club. Um, And uh, for her, it was work, because several years ago, um, and in this new book, her story is there, uh, by Audrey Carlson. But briefly, many years ago, her daughter wanted to get her father a dog, because they had cats in the house that were female, three girls, You know, and and the mother (laughs) Uh, and the father felt he was outvoted on everything because every other creature in the house is a female. So she was going to get him a male dog. But when she went to the breeder, the breeder said, uh, no, that dog that you wanted, that black uh, um, poodle is already a s4, So I can't give it to you. So she went home. And in a year or so later, she was murdered by somebody. And, uh, yeah, and that breaks everybody's heart to have that happen to your child. But when they recovered from it, they thought, you know, why don't we get a dog uh, to honor her and to help dad have a male in the house? So they went to the same breeder and said the room was just filled with dogs running around crazy, a bunch of poodles, and the breeder blows a whistle, and they all stopped except one runs over and jumps into the father's lap and puts his paws on his shoulders. And Audrey said, my husband just burst into tears and started just crying and crying as this dog just stood there looking at him. And the breeder said, Oh my God, what is it? That's the dog your daughter picked out for your husband. Hmm. And, the people couldn't keep it, so they returned it to me. Well, of course, they took the dog home and he became a big part of their healing. And that's, you know, what the animals keep teaching us. They always say, if you don't know what to do, ask yourself, WWLD, what would Lassie do? And then (laughs) go ahead and do that.
0: Yeah, you know, that speaks a lot to just, you know, the theme of trying to get people to loosen up and not take life so serious, to have fun, to play. Um, And, you know, I know I I wanted to hear you talk a little bit more and you were kind of giving the example of that one um, gentleman that was given the year to live and he lived five years longer. But in talking about self-healing and how the mind can fight illness and, you know, I know in one of your books you discuss how people can think themselves well. So, you know, if we have listeners out there that maybe might have been diagnosed with something recently or have been struggling with a medical issue, I mean, how do you really educate people and encourage them to practice that?
1: Well, several things. One, I learned how powerful my words were to people. I mean, hypnosis began to be something I became interested in because you're a child lying in the emergency room. Dr. Siegel comes in and says, I'm going to take you up to the operating room. And you'll go to sleep when you go in the operating room. Now, I'm thinking of anesthesia to reassure them that we won't, you know, do anything that's painful for them. That they'll be asleep. We took the kids up to the operating room on their stretcher, wheeled them in, and they would fall asleep on the stretcher when they went in the room. Now, you'd say, why is that? Because that's what I said in the emergency room. You go to sleep. And it began to become a joke because then I began to... Say that to every child, and the staff in the operating room would burst out laughing as kids fell asleep. <laughs> and one, I always laughed because one boy who had appendicitis turned over and fell asleep. So when I picked him up, I turned him back. When I put him on the operating table, and he started shouting at me, "What are you doing? What are you doing?" I said, "I'm turning you over so we can go ahead with the surgery." He said, "You told me I would sleep, and I sleep on my stomach." I mean, that's how literally the kids took it now, to get to a more significant you might say the the body believes what the mind conceives now, due to medical errors, I heard these stories because the doctors needed help. They felt so terrible. Medical errors, what do I mean? The treatment isn't put in the solution that is given to the patient. The radiation therapy machine is repaired. Nobody puts radioactive material back in when they were done repairing it. Now, what happens? You would think the doctors would immediately know because the patients would not be reacting, having any results. No. One of them came to me after a month and said, I feel awful. I said, what's the matter? They repaired the machine. I haven't treated anybody for a month because they didn't put the radioactive material back in. And when I did the routine inspection, I found out the mistake that they had made. I said, you don't know what you're telling me. He said, I'm telling you I feel awful. I said, excuse me, are you a dumbbell? No. If you are not treating people, don't you think you would have realized it, but you had patients with side effects of treatment they thought they were getting? They had tumors shrinking because they thought they were getting treated. And I never forget his facial expression. Oh, my God, you're right. Now, I couldn't get him to write an article about it because I think he probably was afraid he'd get sued. But, I mean, that's the power of the mind. Or or hair falls out because you think you're getting chemotherapy and you're not because the nurse Made a mistake and didn't put it in the solution. So again, the mind is incredibly powerful. So that's part of why I draw, you know, get people to draw pictures, because when you draw, and again, I don't make up any of these stories or words. The devil giving you poison, you are in for big trouble. See, as chemotherapy, uh, because on the way to the hospital, your blood counts are already going down. But if you see it as a gift from God. And as crazy as it may sound, some people will see it as their gift that'll save them. So it's this beautiful yellow energy flowing right to their cancer. And they don't have any side effects or problems. One of my patients, the radiation therapist called me and said, I thought the machine was broken. Then I saw your name in the chart and I know it's one of his crazy patients. He (laughs) said to the patient, why don't you react to radiation? I thought my machine was broken. She said, I get out of the way and let it go to my tumor. You'd say, how do you do that? But believe me, a lot of doctors in town who were critical of me for what I was doing, see, blaming patients and, you know, because I would talk about their lives and why they might have gotten sick now and what the illness meant to them and a lot of things. But they began, just like that radiation therapist, to realize, hey, if it's one of Bernie's crazy patients, give them hope. Mm-hmm. they began to see the difference. So there were people who, as one, well, one, my father-in-law was a quadriplegic, and we had nurses' aides here at the house to help us with him. One of them had a call from, from her cousin in uh, North Carolina. The doctor said, I'm going to die in two months, and it doesn't even pay to go get treatment. It'll make me feel worse. He said, just go home and enjoy the last few months of your life. She said, "Come up here to Connecticut. Doctor Siegel makes people well all the time." She shows up, and that's what the aide tells me. I got my cut. I said, "Okay, I'll minute the hospital and find out what's going on." Turned out she had leukemia. So I said to her, "Look, this is not something I can treat as a surgeon, but I'll get my oncologist friends to come and take care of you." And I sat on the bed, gave her a whole bunch of hugs, and my oncologist friends came over, and he called me. He said, Bernie, I agree with her doctor. Um, I don't think she has much time, but I know about you and your crazy patients, so I'll give her hope. And he started treating her. And his letters to me were doing well, very well, incredibly well. She is in complete remission. That was within a couple of months. And Mm. she went home with no sign of cancer. Her words later I heard from the aide was, Oh, my cousin said when you sat on her bed and talked to her and gave her a big hug, she knew she'd get better. Now, again, if doctors were trained to talk to people, I have an article on my website, Bernie Siegel, S-I-E-G-E-L-M D uh dot com. Bernie com If you go there, there's an article called Deceiving People into Health. And some of these stories, plus many more, you'll understand, because I learned even well, the reason I call it deceiving in a sense, I was lying to people, but for their benefit, if you know what I mean, mm-hmm. and a simple lie was um <clears throat> to take an alcohol sponge and you say to somebody, "These are new sponges; they have something in them that will numb your skin so you won't feel the needle when we start the i v a and draw your blood." for a test, and I would rub them firmly with it and then put the needle in. Now, literally, a third of the people had no feeling of pain at all. Total anesthesia, thank you, why don't the other doctors do that? And the others would say, I felt it, or it still hurt a little, but it was a very different reaction. So, I would assure people of things um so they had confidence in a treatment, you know, whether you call it a placebo or anything else. Um, now, a lot of times I felt what detracted from it was I had to tell the family what I was doing. Um, and that would take away, you might say, some of the belief and energy. Because if the family knew I was doing some alternative treatment just to give the person hope, they might think, oh, well, that's not going to work. So they don't go home with that same positive attitude, but it, it, the mind does an incredible amount, uh, in terms of helping people to heal or not. You know, when you get tired of your body, yeah, you can turn the switch off and have a comfortable death surrounded by loved ones that they don't see you as a failure. You've been a teacher for them, um, and have helped them. And uh, and it can be many, many ways that, um, see, men say things like, I can't work anymore. What's the point of living? And their wife and children are sitting in the room. And I ask them, excuse me, aren't these a reason? Now, the women will often say, I can't die until they're all married and out of the house. But what happens when they're all married and out of the house? All the kids are gone. And it's okay for mama to die. So. I want people, again, to live their authentic life. These are the words from a woman who I met when she was wearing such an outrageous red dress that I was getting a headache because she was sitting in the front row in the audience. I mean, the glare and and intensity of the color. I didn't know how her husband let her out of the house looking (laughs) like that, but she handed me a letter at the end of my lecture. In it, it said, my mother's words were eating away at me and maybe gave me cancer. She dressed me in dark clothes told me I was a failure who embarrassed her. She said, when I developed cancer, you gave me the right to be the authentic person I was meant to be. And I did say to her, you didn't need me to give you the right, it was your right. But she went on to say, I went out and bought a red dress, and red high heel shoes, and many other things. And when I read that, it was like, okay, now I understand. And she's alive and well today, right? And whenever she's in Pennsylvania, near downtown Pennsylvania, but when I was there a year or so ago to speak, um, I, I knew she was in the audience, and I asked her to stand up, and of course she was wearing a red dress, and I said to people, see? <laughs> um, and it was just such a wonderful message to have her there and to show that she's living her life now, and it isn't about what other people think. Well, another symbol is... You see, to get to that place, you have to be like the ugly duckling or the tiger whose mother died and was raised by goats. What do I mean by that? You need a quiet mind, what I call the still pond, to see the truth, the true reflection. The ugly duckling realizes, hey, I'm a swan. Because like that woman, you see, he didn't walk around saying, my mother's words are eating away at me. She threw me out of the house. I'm ugly. That rotten woman. Yeah, you could spend your life hating your mother or, like all the headlines, go home and kill everybody out of revenge for not being loved. But the opposite of love is rejection, indifference, and abuse. And then you seek revenge. And that's really the story of our civilization. If you grow up with love, then you care about all living things. Let me give you a test question. It may be a diversion, but at least you'll know what you're like. You have to answer me. After the rain, you go out in the street and you see several worms lying on the pavement. What do you do?
0: Um, I guess what I would do is pick the worms up and move them over to the grass.
1: Good. (laughs) You passed the test. Because I've been picking them up for years, thinking it's part of your neurotic behavior like all the animals. You know, you rescued. And then I came across, thank goodness, some of Schweitz, Schweitz's writings because he talked about a reverence for life. And he said, if you're walking down the street, you see a worm, pick it up and return it to the earth. And if you see an insect in a puddle, give it a leaf to climb on.
0: Hmm.
1: You grow up with that kind of reverence for life, which our children literally have because of what it was like. They wouldn't even let me swat insects in the house. They would yell at me if they saw me going after some, you know, bug flying around the house and say, Dad, just let it out. You know? And one of them who is in law enforcement and in order to be accepted into what he's in, um, the they are asked the question, are you capable of killing someone? Now, it is graduation. I, I That really hit home for me. That your Mm -hmm. child is asked, can you kill someone and has to say yes, if he's going to continue on. But obviously, the killing is not about, you know, the headline type killing. It's about saving lives. And he emailed me saying, and why I'm not worried with him having a gun, saying that he was in training and between classes, he went out for a walk and saw a turtle on the street. And his sense of humor is, it must have been a male who refused to ask directions. But he said, I picked it up, spent half an hour, found a pond and released it. That touched my heart, you see, because here is someone who is in law enforcement, has a gun and spends a half hour saving a turtle's life. I don't have to worry about him hurting anyone. And that's how we all have to grow up with a reverence for life. Um, and then there are many ways of dealing with the issues and the problems. I always say we need to be a love warrior. Use love as your weapon. And people don't know what to do with you. In a sense, you know, the animals teach us that. Well, let me, you know, the story pops into my head because we rescued a rabbit, um, it was running around out in the woods near our house. And I wrote a little book about it called Smudge Bunny because it was a black and white rabbit. So it was Smudge and Snowflake. You capture them in they have a heart trap, brought them in, and they became what's called house rabbits. And literally, they're like cats. They live in the house. They're smart as hell. You know, uh, use litter, eat the food out of their dish and a very... The only thing is you have to cover the wires so they don't chew on anything and, uh, you know, get electrocuted. But um, the uh, just one, when I say they're clever, when they want attention, I would sit in a chair in the living room reading a book and um, the rabbit would jump up next to me, grab the book or the magazine, throw it on the floor. And I knew the rabbit was saying, hey, I want you to rub my stomach, never mind the damn book. I mean, I just loved that kind of behavior, how assertive this little rabbit could be. But 10 days after we got it, I left the house and forgot to shut the pet door. But because I had been warned that the, the pets all have to know each other, they can hurt each other. But I thought that it probably was okay. So I didn't go back and shut the pet door because the rabbit was outside and our dog Furfy was inside. But when I came home, I could see that Furfy bit the rabbit. He was. Wounded, you know, he probably grabbed him and shook him like a stuffed toy and uh, I broke my heart. But when I was taking care of the rabbit's wounds, plus with veterinarian's help, I don't mean I did it all. um, If I were hurting the rabbit, I knew I was when I was hurting her because she would turn her head, lick my hand. That touched my heart. She could have turned her head and bitten my finger, but she licks my hand. Boy, did that touched me. And then a couple of weeks later, when I went out to bring Smudge into the house, because when it got dark, I was worried about her being outside. And um, and I may add, again, the, the intuitive communication. Um, she would run around the yard like crazy when I was trying to bring her in. And I finally, one day, in my head, quietly said to her, why don't you let me bring you in? And she said, when I say she said, I hear this in my head, you don't treat the cats that way. I said, what are you talking about? You let the cats stay out in the evening. I said, because I don't worry about them. If a predator jumped the fence, Um, they know how to climb a tree and run away or protect themselves. You don't. And from then, she would let me pick her up in the afternoon. But this one mm-hmm. afternoon, I went out and I couldn't find her. I'm calling her name. No sign of her. And the dog, Furfy, was lying there in the yard. So I walked over to him to pet him. And when I bent over, who is tucked into his back? He's a very furry dog. That's how we got the name Furfy, um, That the rabbit was tucked in against his back, hiding behind him. So I wouldn't see her. And I thought, there's my lesson from her today of forgiveness. Here's someone who grabbed her, threatened her life, but they're friends now. Mm. And that's what I call in the sense, a love warrior. You know, she's not biting him, running away from him. Um, He's her friend now. And those are the lessons you learn. And I may add if people want their heart broken. Go on the internet and look up a poem called Rags by Edmund Vincent Cook. I will tell you how it ends, but read the whole thing. Um, And the dog I have now, I named after that poem, Rags. Um, But in it, a soldier, his life is saved by a dog named Rags. And when he's discharged, he wants to bring the dog home, but he can't find him. So he presumes he was sent ahead. He gets back to medical school. That's why this touched my heart. And he goes into a class where they have an animal cut open for everybody to study and look at. And he walks over and he realizes it's rags. And the dog licks his hand and dies. And the poem ends with basically, well, if there's no place in heaven for preacher creature like that. I'll take my place in hell. But when I read that, yeah, I was in tears because it is so true that they don't resent, they don't hate, they forgive and love. And uh, the animals are our teachers really. Um, and I'd say they, they, over and over again, they're wonderful role models um, and just enjoy the day and you, and uh, they're so intuitive, knowing um, what you're thinking and everything else. Yeah, I had um, one of the cats that we had named Hope. Um, I was having a pain in my leg, some kind of muscle injury, and when we first got her, she had jumped into bed and slept with us, and then she went and found other places that she liked. Well, my leg was hurting, I noticed she was back in bed again, sleeping right on the area that was bothering me. And it's amazing. And then when you feel better, she's back in her little special place, taking care of herself. And uh, one cat we had was named Miracle. It was named after a cat appeared in a dream to a woman with cancer. Said, my name is Miracle. This is how you treat your cancer. And the lady wrote it all down and her doctor agreed to do it. And of course she got well. So we had a cat named Miracle (laughs) for 20 years. And she had uh, hyperthyroidism and had a reaction to medication we gave her. So she died not because she was sick, so to speak, but because of the crazy reaction to some medication. But uh, any cat lives 20 years is special. And I yeah. used to take Miracle, I mean, something humorous for a moment. I used to take Miracle everywhere because she was brought here as a kitten. After I heard about that lady's dream, when our son walked in the door saying he rescued her from a garage, I said, well, her name is Miracle. And I just took her everywhere. She got to know people, took her to nursing homes. And just even I went to a car wash. She went with me. And she'd sit on my shoulder if I went places, went shopping. She'd just sit there. People couldn't believe it. But they had a dog show in town, and um, I took Miracle and Furfeet to the dog show because Miracle always acted like a dog. I mean, she'd walk with you. You could call her, give her commands, and she listened to everything I said better than a dog. Um, And when I walked in, people said, excuse me, this is a dog show. I said, she thinks she's a dog, and I'm not going (laughs) to hurt her feelings. (laughs) so they didn't know what to do with me you know so I walked in with her and all the dogs came running over you know it's like what the hell's the cat doing here and they came running over and she just sat there no fear at all you know 200 pound Newfoundland is sniffing her and she's just looking up at it and so she got so much attention uh that the next year they put the sign up about the dog show and it said dog show for dogs only. And I knew they were telling Siegel not to show up with that cat. With the cat. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, some of the stories that you're telling, are they in your new book that's coming out? Love animals and miracles. Yeah.
1: Because what I do with, I collect a lot of stories. What I learn is what changes people are stories. Mm -hmm. Because if you start talking as I used to, like a doctor you know, scientifically in this study, then people argue with you. That wasn't a well-controlled study, you know? And and so you end up arguing about the study. And instead I would tell stories and nobody felt threatened by a story. It's an anecdote. It's a story, but it opened their minds to have other stories come in. And, you know, and then they would start talking to me and we would dialogue and open people's minds. And that's the key. I always say to people, don't let your beliefs limit you live by your experience. So these people send in stories in many of our books from a book of miracles to animal, you know, love animals and miracles. There are many books where people have sent in stories. And then I comment about the story. There's one called faith, hope and healing again, where the patients can be your role model. So, after somebody tells their story, I can say, here's what they're teaching us. And um, then people not only have the story, but learn from it. So it becomes their, what I call life coach. That the coaches can be critical of you. But you know, that's for the, they're trying to improve you. And I may add, if anybody goes to a doctor... Ask the doctor, are you criticized by patients, family, and nurses? And guess what the best ones say? Yes. You'd say, why are they the best ones? Because the criticism is about doing it better. And they're willing to listen and improve. As one nurse said to me, you know, when when I asked her, what am I, the worst doctor? Why are all the nurses telling me what I'm doing wrong? And she said, because we know you care, so we tell you if there's a better way of doing something. She said, there are a lot of doctors who always make excuses and we don't bother to talk to them because they're not willing to change or learn. So keep learning and look for life coaches. Now, what I mean by that is it's not the nurse doesn't come up to me and say, you're the worst doctor in the hospital. That doesn't improve me. But as one patient said to me, what's wrong? I said, what do you mean? Your face is all wrinkled up and... I said, I'm thinking about how to help you. She said, think in the hallway and smile when you come in here. Boom. See, that that taught me something, that I can come in and scare patients because I'm thinking, but the expression on my face is scary to them. But I need to do my thinking and then come in, having worked it out with a smile, saying, I know how to help you. And those are the things I learned.
0: Awesome. And, um, you know, just in speaking about animals too, and, um, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, therapy dogs. I had the opportunity, you know, to work with some veterans that had some therapy dogs that they were able to like actually apply for, to get, to help, to treat with their anxiety and their post-traumatic stress. And, you know, nowadays it's, not uncommon to see therapy dogs on airplanes and, you know, right. and that I always find to be pretty miraculous. Just the, the training well, that some of those animals go through to be in Yeah,
1: let me make it scientific, too. I mean, mm. yeah, I'm, I'm always amazed at the therapy dogs and uh, guide dogs when, you know, you go out to eat in a restaurant and they sit under the table um, and don't put their head up and ask you for dinner, you know, uh, that they can restrain themselves. Um, but again, the science, when you pet a furry creature, your oxytocin and serotonin levels rise. Those are the bonding hormones that rise after a woman gives birth and helps her to bond with the new baby. And see, those are the things once people begin to look into it scientifically and not say this is all crazy, what difference does it make if you have a dog? But It does. And it changes you chemically. And so matter of fact, any women, single women listening, if you're looking for a husband, get a dog first and take (laughs) it for a walk where men are. And you'll be amazed how many guys start talking to you because you have a dog. I mean, I, I'm laughing because, you know, I'll take our dogs for a walk. And when I get home, my wife says, did you meet anybody? You know, she's always checking on me, but, um, I notice how many people talk to me because I'm walking a dog versus if I'm walking on our town trails um, that that are there for, you know, as walking trails. They'll walk by you listening, you know, to their radio or on their phone. But if the dog is there, oh, how cute. And you get into a conversation.
0: Now, do you also want to speak to um, what humor does for
1: healing? It laughter. Well, one of the things that impressed me was you can't be afraid when you're laughing. And I mean that literally. It's something I learned. Um, it just breaks through everything. And so, again, especially with the kids, uh, as a surgeon, I would do childish things, silly things, and the kids would laugh, even playing, you know, childlike music in the operating room. But again, you know, when you talk about playing music, imagine lying on the operating table and you hear Frank Sinatra singing, all of me, why not take all of me? And the patient said, is everything all right down there? And then the whole room is laughing because of the song or Mm -hmm. another time, Amazing Grace came on and I hear the patient say, is everything all right? You know, (laughs) when you get all that spiritual music, but a specific example. A woman who was in great fear of surgery, and I literally spent over an hour trying to calm her down because I thought it was dangerous to bring somebody who was this frightened into the operating room in terms of heart problems or something else that might occur. But I realized I can't spend the whole day talking to her. It's not really making much difference. So we wheeled her into the operating room. And she sits up on the stretcher and looks around and says, Oh, thank God. All these wonderful people are going to take care of me. And I thought, if I agree with her, that isn't going to accomplish a damn thing. So I said, I've worked with these people for years. I know them. They are not wonderful people. Now the look <laughs> on her face for a moment was I'm getting out of here. But then, you know, she realizes, Oh, Siegel, he's kidding. And she burst out laughing and of course, the staff in the operating room knows I'm not normal. So they were all <laughs> laughing. And we became family. And I realized that's what humor did. And I call it childlike humor. It is not rude. It's not putting anybody down. It's just fun. Mm-hmm. And then they burst out laughing. I mean, let me give you another example. I don't know if it's in this book, but uh, we have five kids. They're in the kitchen raising hell. And I came in and I said, look. You may choose peace or you may choose conflict. And our daughter, who has a hearing impairment, said, I'll have pizza. (laughs) And they all started laughing and their arguing is over. (laughs) And those are stories they never forget. You know, the animal side, one girl, four boys we have. And uh, one of the boys was into reptiles and snakes. And it was like the snakes knew that Carolyn couldn't deal with snakes. And if, if they got loose, they always went to her room. Oh and in those days, she had a typewriter with a cover over it. And they seemed to love to go into that, you know, dark, hidden space. So she would go into type and you'd hear a scream. We'd know where the snake was. But what the boys did was buy a rubber snake just to drive her nuts. So every morning they'd put it by her, you know, bedroom door And she'd come out, oh, then, you know, after a while, she realized, oh, it's my brother's teasing me. Except one day, this python named Monty Python um, was missing. We couldn't find him. And then we hit Carolyn scream and we knew where Monty was. But what happened was she came out of her room and saw him lying there. And she thought, oh, another rubber snake by my brother. So she picked it up, and then she realized it's not a rubber snake. It's a real snake. And uh, then we heard her shriek and uh, knew where the snake was. And, uh, you know, all those things helped the house lighten up and, uh, and just, you know, beat together. You know, one of the birds that Carolyn rescued was with an injured wing. It lived in the house with us. And um, then when it learned to fly again, we put it outside. And like those ducks and geese, it didn't leave. It stayed in a tree in our front yard. And it knows time, too. Animals know time. There's no question about that. It would come down every morning, you know, when we got up to get ready for school and work and wait for its meal. And then after it got fed, it would go sit in the tree again. And it hung around for about a week. And then it left and broke Carolyn's heart. But I said, hey, you know, it wants to find friends and it can't live with us forever out in the front yard. But again, it's it's that attachment. You let it go, it didn't zip away. And one more mystical, if you have time for it. On my website, there's a story called You Can't Sleep With a Butterfly. We, my wife and I, went to the Hawaiian Island of Kauai a couple of years after a patient of mine died there getting her relationship straightened out with a mother. And she did and died peacefully there. We get there two years later to do an outdoor workshop. We go into a store and there's a butterfly flying around in the store. And we're always rescuing everything. So my wife puts her hand up and the butterfly lands in her hand. And then we walk outside with it to release it. But the butterfly doesn't leave. It sits in her hand. If my wife shakes her hand, it went up on her shoulder. And I figured, what the hell? It's not going to leave. So let's get in the car and go back to the hotel. We drive back to the hotel, it's out with us, and it goes up to the room with us. It wouldn't leave. And so we spent the evening with it. And then I said to my wife, you can't sleep with a butterfly, so you got to get rid of it. She went out on the porch, brushed it off her shoulder, and came in and said, I brushed it off. I said, look at your other shoulder. It came back in on the other shoulder. And then I really felt it was my patient spirit and Mm -hmm. I started talking to it. I said, we're doing a workshop tomorrow and I'd like to use you as a symbol of transformation. I'll put you in a bag, release you when I lecture and no problem. The next morning I opened this little bag in the kitchen area of our uh, hotel rooms and it, it hops in, stays there. We get to the site of the workshop, I told people about a butterfly, and then I opened the bag to demonstrate, you know, let it fly out and touch their hearts, and it flew around from nine in the morning till five o'clock in the afternoon. It never left. When we were done, then it flew up and away. And I'll tell you, there's no way of explaining that. Uh, and I have many other stories I can tell you about animals like that. Um, it had to be a spirit, you know. Or when you're driving down the parkway and your son has died, but you hear his voice say, "Mom, slow down." And he used to have a lot of pigeons, and a pigeon lines lands in the lane that you're driving, and you hear your son's voice again, and you slow down. And what do you find when you head around the curve? Is she device? and a pileup of cars that you have avoided because you heard your son's voice. I've had birds fly in the window of our cancer support group when a woman was talking about her daughter who also was murdered, how it interrupted an outdoor wedding of one of her sisters, you know, a bird. And as I say, Mm -hmm. and then a bird flies in while she's talking about her daughter and everybody's feeling was, your daughter's here. So consciousness is not local. We talk about that in the book, too, because an animal intuitive, Amelia Kincaid, um, I met her in California at an nunkill conference at ASPCA. <clears throat> met her in the elevator. And I just said, hi, why are you at the meeting?" She said, I'm an animal intuitive. And I thought, lady, you see that my belief. Lady, you're nuts. You talk to animals. Come on. But <clears throat> what has Amelia done to prove it to me? while in California and in Africa, she has told me where to find lost pets in Connecticut. And I never forget the first email. Your cat is alive. I can see through its eyes, the moon. And then she described the house and I picked it up the next morning. And the other one was in the basement and Amelia described the entire basement. So I knew where the animal was. I mean, she doesn't know what part of the house it is, but she'll say, this is what I'm seeing. And Mm -hmm. again, Amelia See, her theme is like what I said before. She'll say to me, Bernie, you have to quiet your mind. Then you get into the animal's mind. But when you're frantic about where's my dog, where's my cat, you know, screaming their name, you're in turbulent water then. And it's never going to happen. And I've seen it work uh, when I can't find our dogs and what, what is happening. You have time for another story?
0: Yeah, we're just we're running out of time, but we'll probably have a couple of minutes left. So, yeah, why don't right. we tell one more story and then the we'll end there. All
1: right. I wrote a book called Buddy. When I went out to walk the other dog, Furfy, a voice said to me, go to the animal shelter. I went down there. I walk in. There's a dog sitting by the door. What's his name? His name is Buddy. He's been there less than 15 minutes. He said, I'm here to take him home. On the way home, I stopped for gas. He jumped out of the car, and ran away, and we had a hell of a time getting him back in. At home, I said to him in my mind, why did you do that? He said, I belong to a couple. The husband's an alcoholic. When the wife would say, take the dog for a walk, he'd lock me in the car while he went to drink at a local bar. I never want to be in a car. And then he would abuse me on the way home. Hmm. And I knew the truth of that because when I would pick up a broom or a stick when we're taking a walk, he would cringe as if I was going to beat him with it. And I promised him after he told me the story, I would never do that to you. Two weeks later, I accidentally hit the button on my car keys and opened the car as I walked away from it. When I came back, the same dog, Buddy, was sitting in an open car. That's what impressed me. When he knew, mm-hmm. I love you, I would take care of you, I will never injure you know or hurt you. Because when you'd say to him, come here, he would back up. Mm -hmm. because of the treatment he had been exposed to. But he became, you know, one of our children too. And uh, yeah, I wrote a book with his name, Buddy's Candle was the book that I wrote to help people deal with the loss of a loved one. I always say, be it a pet or a person, um, that we need to know how to deal with that loss. And in concluding, I'll say the the theme is don't let your tears put out Mm -hmm. your loved one's Candle, because every one in heaven has their own little bright candle. But if your tears never stop, then they end up putting out that candle. So enjoy mm-hmm. the life that they would want you to have.
0: Well, thank you so much, Bernie. This has been just a lovely conversation, and I don't know. I just want to go grab a cup of hot chocolate and come over to your house and sit by the fire and here. You know, hours more of stories. So I'm sure our listeners are probably feeling the same way. But um, thank you. It was a really, really beautiful talk. We do have
1: hot chocolate. My wife loves it. (laughs) (laughs) All
0: right. I'll I'll be over in a couple hours. (laughs) All right. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks, Bernie.
1: Peace be with you. All right. Bye-bye.
0: If you'd like more information about our films or to purchase our DVDs, you can head on over to our website at thepastseries.com. They're also available to purchase on amazon.com. Our films are also streaming online at vimeo.com, guyamtv.com, and iTunes. If you have a show suggestion or would like us to interview someone specifically, please feel free to shoot us an email at info at or send us a tweet at thepastseries. Please rate and review us in iTunes and subscribe. We hope you enjoyed the show.